Hi, Foibles listeners. So, we have another announcement for you. Newsflash! Much to my shame, we received an email from a listener that tipped me off to something. And we want to give a shout out to Anthony. Thank you, Anthony, for your email. It was our first email at foiblespodcast at gmail.com. And uh, Anthony asked... Where's part three of the Lord Peter Whimsey and Dorothy Sayers series that you started, oh, six months ago or so? We had two parts out, and we promised a third one. And in my mind, I couldn't find the file for the third part, and I thought, I'm pretty sure we lumped together the last two sections. And much to my uh, chagrin, I found the third part in an unrelated folder, and uh, we'll be editing it. And that part will be coming out next after our part two of Lonesome Dove. And I also have, uh, you know, just so everyone knows, I did make Zoe take the walk of shame. And <laughs> just around the house. Just around the house. <laughs> so, uh, with ashes on her head. <laughs> we'll be editing and releasing part three of the Dorothy Sayers, who is the author of the Lord Peter Whimsey novels. Uh, the last part was the scandal of her life. Right, and so now we're going to get to those last books, those last fantastic yeah, books. Yeah, I believe we left off on your favorite, actually, Dial M for Murder. No, no sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll leave that in. Um, that was funny. <laughs> What's the advertising agency? Yeah, yeah. M is for Murder? No, advertise, uh, uh, Murder Must Advertise. Thank you. Uh, that's the title of the next one, and it's your favorite in the Whimsy series. So the next part should be pretty good, and then also the big romantic uh culmination of the series happens in those next books so yes it should be a fun episode and i'm glad it exists and also embarrassed that i forgot about it <laughs> okay well that'll be great thank you welcome to foibles where my mom and i record conversations we have anyway i'm zoe I'm Zoe's mom. Oh, yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. (laughs) Welcome back to Foibles and to our second part on Lonesome Dove. First of all, we really want to thank everyone from What Should I Read Next who checked out our podcast. I just want to let you know we had a fantastic time. It was great talking to Anne and... And And her team. Brenna. I want to shout out to Brenna and Melissa. I have to just confirm for everybody that Anne is just as nice and smart (laughs) as she appears on the podcast. They did do a great job of editing, too, though. Yeah, they made us sound like we were nice and smart, too. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully this this less filtered version of us is going to be entertaining for you, but we're going to keep digging into Lonesome Dove now. Trigger warning. I don't remember exactly on this episode if we talked a whole lot about sexual assault, but it does occur in the book. It is a big piece of the experience of the women in the book, and we want to just warn you that it may be mentioned. We don't go into graphic details or describe anything, but we uh, sometimes it does come up. Yeah. So it, we talked about it some last time, but it might come up again in this part. So now we'll, we'll be switching over from talking about Lorena to actually covering some the of main the, the main characters, the men in the book, and who are equally fascinating and uh, complicated. And we hope that you really enjoyed this episode. So here's Gus and McCall. The two, two of them are juxtaposed, right? They're best mm-hmm. friends and rangers, and they're, they're pretty much equals in terms of ability. But their life philosophies are very opposed to each other, and their 
personal styles are very opposed to each other and their um, standing on moral issues are often opposed to each other. So they're clearly the two poles of the book. And one of the tensions that comes up between them a lot is that Gus wants Call to adopt Newt as his son and call him his son and everything. Right. And that's maybe even the, the biggest tension between them aside from little like arguments about like why they're going north. Um, and so within that tension, there's another woman figure who is dead before the book starts, Maggie, Newt's mother, who was also a sex worker in Lonesome Dove before she died, who Call went to see despite his own reluctance reluctance, and his own feeling like it destroys his moral superiority or whatever as a man. It isn't clear in the book. It's very interesting because he seems to say because she was a prostitute, because she was a sex worker, that was immoral. But really... When you delve down and really read the text, it was because he opened up enough to feel love. He, he couldn't even call it loved. He wouldn't even have been able to put a name to it. But he felt like he needed her. He needed to be with her. And that was the break in his morality, not that he was having sex with a prostitute. Right. So there's, he implies that, like, you know, there's weakness of the flesh, but he also implies she made me weak, which means, like, she made him feel something. Yes. And so there's a, a section. He does meditate on this several times throughout the book, but he says, uh, all his life he'd been careful to control experience as best he could. And then something had happened that was forever beyond his control, just because he'd wanted to find out about the business with women. For years, he had stayed to himself and felt critical of men who were always running to whores. When he had done it himself and made a mockery of his own rules, something about the girl, her timidity, or just the lonely way she looked sitting by her window had drawn him. And somehow, within the little bits of pleasure, a great pain had been concealed, one that had hurt him far more than three bullets he had taken over the years. When the boy was born, it got worse. For the first two years, he was in torment over what to do. Gus claimed Maggie had said the boy was Call's. But how could she know for sure? Maggie hadn't had it in her to refuse a man. It was the only reason she was a whore. Again, this is from his perspective. Call had decided she just couldn't turn away any kind of love. He felt it must all count as love in her thinking, the cowboys and the gamblers. Maybe she just thought it was the best love she could get. A few times he almost swayed, almost went back to marry her, though it would have meant disgrace. Maybe the boy was his. Maybe it was the proper thing to do. And so what we hear later in the book, said by a few characters, is, of course he's your son. Look at him. He walks just like you. He looks just like you. So the, the resemblance makes it clear that she was correct. And Newt really is his son, his biological son. And at the same time, it almost doesn't matter because he's also his spiritual son, you know? Well, Newt adores him. Mm-hmm. He doesn't feel comfortable with him. He doesn't feel like with some other people like Dietz, for example, like he's a friend, like he can go to him. But he's in awe of him as if he were a god. And in a way, Newt and Call are playing out Call's belief in the stereotypical role of the older and the younger male in that he is untouchable calls up there he he's so good at everything and he's in a way to be worshipped and beyond being touched and there's this young man who's looking up to him and even though call doesn't bask in that adoration or really take advantage of it in fact he rejects it and that therein is the real toxicity of that kind of way to hold yourself Mm. is okay maybe you are silent maybe you are inner maybe there can be a lot of things that can be okay if you can identify the crucial relationships and identify where you need to act and usually call can but he can't he can't in this case that he needs to somehow give newt something and really what everyone says he needs to give newt is his name meaning to acknowledge him as his son 
Uh, actually, since we're getting on to Newt, which is a great combination to get onto with Lorena, what Larry McMurtry said is that the lonesome dove of the title is Newt. Hmm. That Newt is the lonesome dove. But I think that it can equally apply to Lorena. I think Newt and oh, Lorena are both a lonesome dove. And they're both, especially in the beginning, very dove-like, very tender, kind of fluttery and soft, um, but with great powers of perception mm-hmm. and compassion. Well, she doesn't have the compassion. Newt does. And Newt get into Newt's head a lot. Basically, he's just a young man in this rough world going, I don't want to shame myself. And he would rather die, I think, than shame himself in front of, of Captain Call. He is, he's so sweet and you just he want is. to like protect him, you know. You do. You want to take him and give him a cup of tea and tell him he's okay. Kiss, yeah. <laughs> kiss him on the head and say, yeah, go ahead. Go do your man thing. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't mean you don't, you don't have to be like these other guys. Right, you know? exactly. <laughs> you, can, you can be strong and not have to be tough. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, uh, that throughout the book you can see that these men can't quite grok. The person that kind of gets close when he feels like it is Gus. And he's kind of an interesting character in that he's, he's almost, see, to me, he's almost like kind of the magical character of the book in the sense yeah. that he, he's everything from a, a great cowboy and like, the, you know, can kill six men at a pop or whatever. <laughs> like he doesn't break a sweat. He has a glib tongue and he's funny and charming and everything and generous. And then also he understands women and like... And somehow that doesn't compromise his masculinity. That isn't to say, though, that he's okay, that his masculinity is okay, because women don't actually have power over him, even though he likes and appreciates them and everything, which is where his philandering comes in, I guess. Absolutely, because he had a woman that he loved, and he still loves. And in a way, it's the enduring love of his life. Clara. Clara. And Clara is a very admirable woman. She's smart, and she's inquisitive and she's a writer and she uh, lives in the city and you kind of think why did she marry this guy she marries she marries this rancher guy who doesn't have that much money and it's way out in the wilderness and it's a really rough life because she's a frontier wife now she could have married Gus he really wanted to marry her but she knew that Gus would philander she knew him she Mm -hmm. understood him they have a wonderful close really intense relationship. She says, well, I want you to be my friend. I don't want to marry you. And it's an interesting thing because it's almost like in proportion to her resistance, his desire grows, which is Gus. And as soon as he would be able to have her, he would go off and do whatever and take her for granted and come back and whenever he wanted to have her. And then he'd charm her into sleeping with him and staying with him. And you know that in the end that there would be bitterness. And so she kind of decides not to be bitter And maybe he's a little bitter. I think you're exactly right what you just said, because the same thing happens with Lorena in a certain sense. He's he's always kind of after her because he wants to understand her, like get in there. He wants to know about her, charm her. And he can't, he's not successful at that. But then after her abduction, he goes after them. He pretty much single-handedly saves her and she becomes dependent on him because she's so traumatized and he's her protector and she comes becomes very docile and he he does like he draws her out again and sort of brings her personality out and he's very compassionate and very tender to her but then once he's completely won her over she would be willing to marry him at this point like she just wants Mm -hmm. to be around him and then he's like no honey like i'm gonna leave you he he got what he like that thing that he couldn't get that was attracting him and like drawing him he's like all right (laughs) 
I'm going to leave you in good hands. Bye. Well, and the thing is, it does work out because she needed to be left in good hands. He didn't have what she needed. It was merely her trauma, her PTSD over this mm-hmm. this horrific abduction and rape that she was, was reacting to. So that was actually the right thing, and right. he did do the right thing, but he didn't do it just for her. He would have taken her if she'd wanted to, but things probably would not have gone very well. That's the thing about Gus is in that relationship with Lorena, I think it's very interesting because the first time I read it, I thought, okay despite his flaws, he is being so compassionate. And he was, because he didn't try to press her into having sex with him or anything like that. But she finally came to the point where she thought, well, if I let him have sex with me, I can keep him. And so she started wanting to have sex with him, not because she wanted to have sex, because Lorena didn't ever want to have sex with anybody after what she'd been through. She, she had no interest in it. But she wanted to have it in order to tie him to her. And so that's where his compassion and his understanding and his insight just left him. Actually, I think he understood why she wanted to have sex with him. Mm-hmm. And so he did because he could get a poke. Mm. So I didn't really remember what happened there. Yeah, so she kind of would cuddle up to him. And, and at some point he finally went, okay. And reading that book and looking at he shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. If he was truly compassionate, he would not because she was simply doing it out of fear of trying to trying to keep him. And she wasn't going to keep him. But he got his pleasure out of it. So, you know, I'm sure that knowing Gus, he'd come up with a great little counter argument to that that'd make you go, oh, I don't know. It didn't seem right, but it's logical. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where maybe that he had given her the reassurance she needed at that time. Mm-hmm. But I do feel that there was, like, if he had been there for her through that without having sex with her, that would have really made a difference. True. It wasn't until she, she ended up, Lorena ends up going to Clara's house. Yep. Because Gus has got to visit Clara. He hasn't seen her in, what, 10 or 15 years. And she's got three children, and she's got a bedridden, comatose husband, and she's doing everything, and... and having emotional difficulties and troubles but she's also strong and she's doing it she's doing what needs to be done for survival and then they come through she takes immediately to Lorena she doesn't feel any jealousy over the fact that she's been sleeping with Gus and that she's younger and more attractive so again McMurtry doesn't play on this old tired thing about female competition no for Gus she says I I see why you're you know why you want to sleep with her aren't you a bit old for her kind Mm -hmm. of thing and she she ribs Gus this is the first time Lorena has had female nurturing being accepted, being stable, being around a stable woman. And she blossoms under that. So it ends up being a very good thing for her that she has to stay there. But she's also being wrenched from the one person who she thought was her safety. And there's actually another woman there. So this book is really written as an epic on the scale of something like Game of Thrones in the sense that there are so many characters and moving parts. And also nobody is safe. People are dying all over the place. Sometimes it's pretty unpredictable. Um, Sometimes it's pretty predictable. But there's this woman, Elmira, who is the wife of this sheriff in Arkansas who is hunting Jake Spoon. And his party meets up with Augustus and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So she ends up also at Clara's home pregnant with July's baby and gives July. I'm sorry. July is the sheriff. Right. Her husband. So she gives birth there and she has this companion who's this enormous buffalo hunter who for some reason is just uh completely devoted to her and she's really weak she ran away from home in order to pursue a man that she was in love with before marrying july and um july is in pursuit of her um 
but basically what I why I started talking about this was that the this home ends up being kind of a hub for all the women characters. Mm. Um, they all intersect in various ways, and Elmira is different from the other two. She doesn't want to be a mother. She doesn't want her baby. She's kind of she's selfish in the way that she's very very fixated on this guy that she was in love with, and she won't think about anything else. And so um, there's there's a lot of diversity among the women as well um, in terms of their motivations and their personalities. And yet she, too, doesn't have very many options as a woman, and this is what she decided to do. Yeah, and the cost of safety of living with July, who is a perfectly good guy. He's a little inept. He's young. His weakness, if you will, in terms of his inability to be as tough, to be as violent. He's really more of a small town kind of sheriff, which is what he was. But she can't stand him because he always has to have his buttermilk and he always says the same thing every day. But he is a kind to her son and she isn't. That's mm-hmm. for sure. So the fact is is that her dislike of him really has no real reason. But I think fundamentally she doesn't like her position. She That's what I was going to say exactly. Yeah. It's the patriarchy <laughs> as embodied in July that she hates is that it's not him. It's the fact that her this is her option. If she doesn't want to be a prostitute, D, the man that she was interested in, he's not going to marry her. He's not going to support her. He's just like Jake Spoon, really. He'll be great to be around and he's fun and all that, but he's not he's not what she imagines him to be. But she marries July because she's pregnant and she needs to get some kind of this handled in some way for herself. Some place to live, somebody to help kid. And so she picks July because he's very naive. And within two days they've met, they're married. And then she doesn't want to have sex with him. She doesn't want to talk to him. She doesn't want to hear him. She doesn't want to see him. And and poor July, he just doesn't, he's so naive, he doesn't even know what to make of this. He doesn't know what to do about it or or what's going on. And she won't talk about it because she's not interested in in the marriage at all. She just wants to be left alone. And the ironic thing about this is she gets away. She manages to take the money they have saved up while he's out of town. She takes this boat going north. A whiskey boat. A whiskey boat. I don't know why she chose the whiskey boat because there were other ways out of town. And this is where all the, like the buffalo hunters and the whiskey traders really Not shady characters really sh- rough and shady and she's the only woman on the boat and she's taking this boat just to get away from july but there's something about that choice she wants to be free she doesn't want to go by the stage she doesn't want to live in the civilized world where she is so oppressed but she's so inarticulate uneducated and not very self-perceptive. but So she makes these decisions of pursuing D is pursuing freedom. And she is doing it so unconsciously that she's making all the wrong decisions. Yeah. So the women so the women are very interesting. In a way, they're, they're more multifaceted than the men. And Newt, um, who's a very sympathetic character, he's still so young, he hasn't developed much. But he does, uh, his one focus is finding his dad, is, is wanting to know who his father is and he learns eventually that Jake Spoon is not his dad he thought Jake Spoon was his dad and he adored and idolized idolized that's the word yeah exactly Jake Spoon but when he meets him he's kind of disappointing at first he really likes him but then he's really disappointing he sees he's not a real man the way like Woodrow Call is who he does worship from afar and then he starts getting hints that Woodrow might be his dad but Woodrow he just it's like there is something that is broken and that door will not open, and he will not speak, even though he knows, he really does know he should. And every time Gus brings it up, he gets really, really mad, so you know he knows. But there is one, uh, there are two times that the relationship 
breaks open, something could happen. And I find this one scene so interesting. It's very cathartic, but it's also unsatisfactory where um, Newt is in town with a couple of the other hands and they are having a good time and they're going to go get their horses and these ruffians come through and decide they want Dish's horse. Dish is what the hand we talked about initially and Dish's top hand. And Newt is a good friend with Dish, and he really admires him, and all as do all the young men. And they're going to take Dish's horse. And so these three teenagers are resisting these big pistoleros who are going to beat them down. And they do. They start to beat them down, and they thought they were going to quirt them. And I guess a quirt is a like a hard like baton kind but, of thing. Yeah. So Newt is hanging on to the bridle and will not let this horse go. And the head ruffian begins to beat him and beat him and beat him and beat him. And what happens is Woodrow is at the store nearby and he's bringing out their supplies and he sees this ruckus going on down the street and he sees what's happening. This is how they describe it. Call dropped the sack of flour onto the tailgate and quickly swung onto the hell bitch. Hellbitch is his horse. <laughs> right. She's um she's she's the fast. other female. She's right. the other really really good female. She's in this book. Fa- she's hellaciously fast and she's also hellaciously mean. And she's very uh has a great deal of stamina. Right. And she's got a beautiful gait. And he's riding her. Right. And it finally gets her under control. But you never know, because just when he is inspected, she turns around and she takes a, like, one point she takes a piece out of his ass. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he says, he saw Dixon again savagely quirt the boy across the back of the neck and anger flooded him, of a kind he had not felt in many years. He put spurs to the hell bitch and she raced down the street and burst through the surprised soldiers. Dixon, intent on his quirting, was the last to see Call, who had made no attempt to check the hell bitch. Dixon tried to jerk his mount out of the way at the last minute, but his nervous mount merely turned into the charge and the two horses collided. Call kept his seat, and the hell bitch kept her feet, but Dixon's horse went down, throwing him hard in the process. Sugar nearly trampled Newt, that's the horse he was holding on to for Dish, trying to get out of the melee. Dixon's horse struggled to its feet practically underneath Sugar. There was dust everywhere. Dixon sprang up not hurt by the fall, but disoriented. When he turned, Call had dismounted and was running at him. He didn't look large, and Dixon was puzzled that a man would charge him that way. He reached for his pistol, not realizing he still had the quirt looped around his wrist. The quirt interfered with his draw, and Call ran right into him, just as his horse had run into Dixon's horse. Dixon was knocked down again, and when he turned his head to look up, he saw a boot coming at his eye. You wouldn't, he said, meaning to tell the man not to kick, but the boot hit his face before he could get his words out. The six soldiers watching were too astonished to move. The small-seeming cowman kicked Dixon so hard in the face that it seemed his head would fly off. Then the man stood over Dixon, who spat out blood and teeth. When Dixon struggled to his feet, the smaller man immediately knocked him down again and then ground his face into the dirt with a boot. He's going to kill him, one soldier said, his face going white. He's going to kill Dixon. Newt thought so, too. He had never seen such a look of fury as was on the captain's face when he attacked the big scout. It was clear that Dixon, though larger, had no chance. Dixon never landed a blow or even tried one. Newt felt he might get sick just seeing the way the captain punished the man. And so it was Augustus who comes out and stops Call and prevents him from actually murdering the guy. And a correction for those of you who know this story and and would be upset, Dixon is a scout for the army, not just a mere ruffian ruffian. wandering around. But anyway, so this is where the dam of Call's emotions about Newt, because underneath this shows he does love Newt. 
he does feel connected to Newt, and he practically murders a guy who is beating Newt up, and he just goes berserk. But even after this point, he never acknowledges Newt, but this is where Newt begins to think, well, maybe he is my pa. And then at the end of the book, giving this away, when Augustus, sorry to tell you, ends up being killed in the book and call goes north to get his body and to bury him where he wants to be buried and kind of a, in a really quixotic somewhat futile promise that he makes that he will bury augustus in this special place that's it's just craziness to, to haul the body for days and days and weeks in a charcoal salt lined uh coffin to, to this burial place anyway when he before he goes off to do this he gives newt his father's watch and his horse but he won't give him his name, and he never does. And Clara calls him on it. She's the one who really puts some teeth into her accusation to him that he has not done the right thing, and that his horse and his watch is not is not enough. But what you can see is that McMurtry showing us that the circle is going to be unbroken, and that Newt, no matter how tender and compassionate and sweet he was, he's also very capable. Calls leaving him in charge of the outfit giving him his badges of authority, not giving him the love and the connection. So what can Newt do but end up being like his dad? Emulate him. Yeah. Because yeah. it's the only way he's going to be able to run this outfit as in, what, a 19-year-old or something. So this is the final passage with the end of the circle between Call and Newt. And it says, He turned to look at the boy. The choking feeling almost overcame him. He decided he would tell the boy he was his son, as Gus had wanted him to. He thought they would ride away a little distance so they could speak in private. Yet, when he looked at Newt, standing there in the cold wind with Canada behind him, Call found he couldn't speak at all. It was as if his whole life had suddenly lodged in his throat, a raw bite he could neither spit out nor swallow. He had once seen a ranger choke to death on a tough bite of buffalo meat, and he felt he was choking too choking on himself. He felt he had failed in all he had tried to be. The good boy standing there was evidence of it. The shame he felt was so strong it stopped the words in his throat. Night after night, sitting in front of Will Barger's tent, he had struggled with thoughts so bitter that he could not even feel the Montana cold. All his life he had preached honesty to his men and summarily discharged those who were not capable of it, though they had mostly only lied about duties neglected or orders sloppily executed. He himself was far worse, for he had been dishonest about his own son, who stood not ten feet away, holding the reins of the hell bitch. Call thought he might yet say it, even if the men were there to hear. He trembled from the effort, and his trembling and the look on his face caused great consternation in P.I., who had never known the captain to be at a loss for words. Looking at the captain, Newt began to feel sadder than he had ever felt in his life. Just go on, he wanted to say. Go on if it's that hard. He didn't want the captain to go on, of course. He felt too young, and he didn't want to be left with it all. He felt he couldn't bear what was happening. It was so surprising. Five minutes earlier, he had been pulling a yearling out of a bog. Now the captain had given him his gun, his horse, and stood with a look of suffering on his face. But he looked again at Newt. The boy looked so lonesome that he was reminded of his own father, who had never been comfortable with people. His father had fallen drunk out of a barn loft in Mississippi and broken his neck. Call remembered the watch that had been passed on to him, an old pocket watch with a thin gold case. He carried it since he was a boy. He raised up in his stirrups, took out the watch, and handed it to Newt. It was my pa's, he said, and turned, and left. Dern, Newt, P. said, more astonished than he had ever been in his life. He gave you his horse and his gun and that watch. He acts like you're his kin. 
No, I ain't no kin to nobody in this world, Newt said bitterly. I don't want to be. I won't be. So from my point of view, I think that looking at Dietz is kind of the next thing to be interesting to talk about in terms of him being black, him being in the West, and the fact that in popular culture, black cowboys, or cowboys, not just black cowboys, but non-white cowboys, even Jewish cowboys, were pretty much erased. The idea is that it was sort of a, a white male kind of European Protestant group is actually inaccurate. And this book does help because there are all kinds of people. There are Mexicans, there are you know, black people, there are... There are Native Americans who are also wrangling horses and absolutely, stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so so Dietz is, like I said, he's the most sympathetic of the non-newt males in the book, I think. He's very capable. He's a great tracker, which is really primarily his, his biggest talent, really, is actually tracking. But he can do other things, too. And he is Newt's friend. He seems to understand Newt. He's someone that Newt doesn't have to be afraid that Dietz is going to laugh at him. And I kind of felt that a lot of Dietz's compassion may well have come from his background. Being Some, marginalized. Being marginalized. Because even though he's better mm-hmm. than all of these other cowboys except maybe Dish, they don't want to... I think he's better than Dish. Yeah, better than Dish. I'm but bro- just just by his own position in society, just by the fact of being black, he cannot be equal. Even yeah. though he did, they yeah. treat him like a comrade to some extent. But they right. also they were saying at the end, Dietz did some fairly heroic. Then and so they were questioning, you know, in their own heads. Well, is it appropriate for me to shake hands with this guy because he's black? That so so he does bring it up. Is that even though it's not an active racism, he's not called names, he's not mistreated badly. There's just this social line or this this cultural line where I don't know if I can sit next to him. I don't know if that would be appropriate. So it's not like out of hatred of him. It's like they learned these things and I maybe that isn't the right thing to do here. And also the fact that, well, nobody even thought of putting Dietz's name on the door. Right. But when he finally indicated he wanted to have his name on the door, they were okay with it. But it's that societal Societal substrata. Yeah, because yeah. even though he's proved himself, there's nonetheless, he's he's not thought of. And he's a great tracker, and that I think it's very interesting in that thematically, he's always going ahead, so he's almost always alone in doing his job. I don't know, I just, I like Dietz, and I'm glad he's in the book. And he's not educated, he can't read, and there are moments where we get to be in his head where he's looking at the night sky and at the moon and and just kind of wondering, wondering about things, wondering about, uh, you know, bigger things on the earth and... Yeah, he's he's a lovely character. I really like him. So I don't know. I don't I don't really feel the desire or urge to pick him apart and say, well, he shouldn't be like that because he's not Superman. He's not magical. Well, also the way Dietz dies is I think emblematic of his character. They are going to get their horses back, which were stolen, and they the book does show that, like for example, a lot of these Indians there are the thieves and the criminals, but there's also the regular Indians, if you will, most of them who are just families, people living together, some warriors, you know, they're all hunters and they're just trying to survive and they're being just run into the abyss, basically, and into into genocide. And so this tribe stole some of their horses and when they finally tracked them down, they found everybody was starving. Very few people and they're all really skinny and obviously very, very hungry. And they just took the horses so they would have something to eat. But Call, he's got that rigid principledness, which is actually one of the things that makes it impossible for him to have any kind of bend or softness around his own son. He's got to get those horses back. It doesn't matter. He's getting the horses back. He might give them one before they leave so they won't starve, but 
he's going to get the horses back because that's what he's going to do. And he's got no flexibility. So they go in and the people all run and they're hiding and the women and they've got the children and everything. And Dietz comes down and there's this little baby, a little toddler, whatever, who's crying and has been separated from the mother. And they're all, the women and the families are all screaming because they think they actually did just kill somebody. They think they're going to be massacred by these men with guns. And Dietz comes in and he sees the child and, oh, the child's blind. That's what it is. Mm. And so he picks the child up, which I'm going, Dietz, don't do it. Picks the child up and he's trying to hold him out, like, come and get the baby. We're not going to hurt the baby. Take the baby. And they, they don't understand English. They don't understand what's going on. And they're one warrior who's like 16 years old. So this young man trying to protect his people. He comes running, screaming out. And Dietz just kind of looks at him like almost like he can't believe it because he's trying to do something good. And this guy doesn't understand that. And he comes running out and he stabs Dietz with a lance right through the side. And then Dietz dies very, very quickly after that. When he could have dropped the child and shot the guy, he had time to do that, but he didn't. And so he dies in this moment of failed compassion, failed understanding. Because the setup was they'd killed somebody when they came into the camp. So everybody was terrified. And that's what happens. That's Dietz. Mm-hmm. And then the other big, big, big issue, of course, is the Indians and the description of Indians and how they're handled. I mean, I feel like a lot of the Indians are no better people than any of the other characters. They, there's the cr- horrible criminal sociopath. And yes, he does play that role. But then there are a lot of Indians who are stealing because they're flipping starving. And the book kind of takes the attitude, well, what do you expect? And they talk about what's happening, about how they're being moved onto the reservation and and these kinds of things without, which I appreciate, without preaching. But you have sympathy for them. Why wouldn't, you know, it's like they're presented like people who are being mistreated. So I like that. I also felt that there is the, the aspect that even though a lot of the Indian people are very good at tracking, very savvy, I mean, it's land they live in. They know this area. They're not magical they're just good. I mean, good at doing what they're doing. They're just able and capable and talented in, in riding horses in, in amazing ways and in, in warrior skills and that kind of thing. And that in a way, there's a certain infection in their own culture of what men are expected to do and the sacrifices that men are required to make. Yeah, I would say it's a pretty fair sociological picture of the kinds of dynamics that were going on at the time. As far as I know. Right. And also, I don't know that it would be appropriate for McMurtry to put himself into the heads of the Indians and try to, you know, discuss their point of view or say what they were thinking or feeling or whatever, the way he was doing with the Western cowboys. Because even with Dietz, he doesn't do that too much. He gives him a lot of humanity, but he doesn't really try to get in and delve into these, the psyche of people whose experiences he doesn't really know about. Aside from the women characters, I guess. But that's yeah. that's a whole nother... That's important. I don't know. That's the point of the book, so... Right. I, I do think... I think it is. And there's this one point where I, he had a section near the beginning where, for some reason, it struck me, this paragraph struck me as what maybe he was trying to say to his mother through this book. This is Augustus and Lorena talking. This, I was married twice, remember, he said. Should have been married a third time, but the woman made a mistake and didn't marry me. What's that got to do with this money, Lorena said. The point is, I ain't a natural bachelor, Augustus said. There's days when a little bit of talk with a female is worth any price. I figured the reason you don't have much to say is you probably never met a man who liked to hear a woman talk. Listening to women ain't the fashion in this part of the country. But I expect you got a life story like everybody else. If you'd like to tell it, I'm the one who'd like to hear it. So I kind of feel like the idea of his mother being denigrated and 
silenced by her husband and by the culture that just didn't want to hear it. Just haul the water lady and bear the children and shut up. That what McMurtry's saying is I do want to know what who you are. Mm-hmm. And I do see you as a as a separate individual human being. I hope we've done justice to um, the book, but also to the issues that it raises. I mean, I'm not a scholar in a lot of these areas, but as I was reading it, the abhorrence of the trail of tears and the marginalization and genocide of the Indian peoples is there. It's there throughout. So even though I'm engaged and engrossed by this adventure of these men who are settling and who are going into new territory and it's very interesting and then that did happen at the same time in the back of my mind and I guess it must be in McMurtry's because it came through the book is whatever the Indian people are doing in retaliation I don't in any way condone the cruelty that may have been engaged in or anything like that but their willingness and necessity to fight to prevent this predation of their lands and their life. I hold that as completely understandable and in some ways laudable depending on how it was carried out. Well said. Thank you. I agree. Yay! Love it when we agree. Yeah. (laughs) We're not one of those podcasts where there's a lot of fighting. I think people think that's what's interesting is, is hearing people fight. Having hot takes or yeah. being de- devil's advocate. And being spicy, yeah. spicy uh, sparring going yeah. on. Um, well, we are mother and child. Yeah. Yeah. But we don't always agree. But on this book, we do. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> so we both feel like it's uh, not only just engrossing great storytelling and everything, but it does like bring up really topical issues, but really fundamental issues that are about compassion and human interconnectedness. Yes. And there's much more to the book. When you read it, you'll find there's other characters and other storylines and maybe other, I'm sure other themes that you'll see that maybe we didn't see or weren't able to get to. So it's very, very rich. And we've just really kind of not, I wouldn't say we we went deeper than glossing over the surface, but we certainly didn't exhaust the themes. Yeah, absolutely. It's so cool. And have a great talk to you next month, (laughs) morning, afternoon, evening, or night. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.